Welcome to the One Question Podcast, brought to you by Wabi Sabi Studios. I'm your host, Michelle Cox, and I love having unlikely conversations on uncomfortable topics. It's a huge passion of mine, so much so that I wrote a few books a while back that challenge people's notion on living a life more unconventionally. This entire podcast stems around one question. If there was one topic you wish society would talk more about, what would it be? The human body is a complex system. The definition of a complex system is that the whole of that system is worth more than the sum of its parts. I think we really need to talk about how it all works together and really focus on holism as almost the primary goal of optimal health. It is not only until we explore the whole person that true health can be found. These words resonate so deeply with me, given my complicated health journey in life to date, and I've been looking forward to sitting down with today's guest to discuss this topic in far more depth. Dr. Michelle Woolhouse is an integrative GP, author, podcaster, and medical director with over 23 years of experience in this space. Her special interests include women's health, mental health issues such as anxiety, stress, and burnout, mind-body medicine, and the neurobiology of healing. Dr. Michelle loves exploring all facets of health with her patients, including nutritional and lifestyle requirements, mental and emotional underpinnings, and of course, social and environmental influences. She particularly loves teaching emotional transformation techniques and supporting mental health in the context of physical diseases. Now, this is not your average doctor, and I encourage you to listen to everything Dr. Michelle has to say today. Given I wrote a book about taking control of your own health and well-being, I've been really looking forward to sitting down with Dr. Michelle to get her view on a few things in the medical space these days and what's going on in this world. Let's dive in. Michelle, it is wonderful to sit down with you today. Welcome. Oh, thanks, Michelle. Thanks for having me on your show. Yeah, fabulous. Good to have you on the other side of the mic for a change. Now, yeah, you are a really interesting person. I've been reading your book uh, before we've met today, and I can't wait to see where this conversation goes. So if there is one thing that you wish society would talk more about, what would it be? I would like society to talk more about the holistic principles of health rather than the fragmentation and splitting it all up into different kind of components that almost compete, you know, against each other. You know, is the gut health more important than heart health? Is, you know, diet more important than exercise? I think we really need to talk about how it all works together and really focus on holism as almost the primary goal of optimal health. Yeah, beautiful. What a great topic and something that I'm very passionate about, like being on this sort of journey since I had cancer 20 years ago and learning more about my body and my health holistically and changing so many drastic things in my life over time. Like I sort of had made little changes, I guess, but when I look at the whole picture, I've changed that quite significantly. But it's through people like yourself and doctors, you know, that do the work like you do that have helped me on that journey. So tell me why this is something you're passionate about and and give people a little bit of background about your history up until here and your career to date. Wow, my history is so funny getting asked that because there's so many different elements to kind of get to, to sort of being 50 and all of the training that I've had. But I guess the journey that started for me was that I had anxiety myself 
medical school is a really, really rough ride. And I often say that, you know, I came out of medical school a shell of my former self, like very, very hollow. It's a very soulless journey. It was really quite traumatising and developed quite a lot of anxiety. There's very little support for junior doctors. And I went into medicine at the age of 17 and, you know, some of my my family of origin was a little bit fragmented at the time. And so I was really very almost hyper-independent. And then when you sort of witness quite a lot, lot of young people dying, you know, for a whole raft of different reasons, I started to develop really significant kind of, I guess, anxiety that was very cyclical and very obsessive and um, you know, fearful of death. And it was just huge. It was big. It was heavy. And I had no support. And I remember going to a doctor and he told me that I had anxiety. And so I was lucky to have that as a, a diagnosis. But I got sent to a psychiatrist who had the biggest desk I've ever seen of any doctor. Like, I mean, literally was the size of the MCG. And I was felt like this tiny person on the other side of this enormous desk. And he was one of those old school psychiatrists with a bow tie and sort of beady kind of glasses and I was super uncomfortable. And he started asking me about my mum and my dad. I was like, what is this got to do with anything? But the best thing that happened to that consultation was he said, oh, well, it's just anxiety, so you're not going to die. And in fact, that was probably one of the kind of gifts because I actually thought that I was going to die. And so I left, I remember, distinct memory, I left that room and I was walking down Princess Street in Kew And I was like, well, I'm not going to die. So what am I going to do? Well, the only way is up. And so in many ways, I kind of had my own internal sense of understanding that this wasn't the worst thing that could happen. And then I went on this incredible journey in my own mind as to what I needed to do to, I guess, support myself. And that went into things like meditation you know, vibrational sound therapy to relaxation and yoga. I learned traditional Vietnamese medicine. I learned hypnotherapy, you know, like, and then I did a post-graduating mind-body medicine. So I was voracious. I really, really was voracious. And I did, you know, all sorts of off-piece kind of therapies as well to try and really understand myself and what was going on. And so that's really how I got to be so passionate about supporting people with anxiety, stress and burnout, really to kind of normalise it for people that it's actually a wonderful thing to experience because the journey out of it allows you just such a depth of wisdom and knowledge in how your own body works. And I guess it's a little bit like your journey, Michelle, in the sense of like you had to take control, like it was like a life-death situation. And I think with anxiety, the beautiful thing about it is feels like a life-death scenario But the good news is that nobody dies of anxiety. There's not one single cause of death equals anxiety across the world ever. When you've got severe anxiety, you have symptoms. I think people liken it to almost like a heart attack, don't they? It's like often heart palpitations. That's right. You get heart palpitations. You often can't breathe. You just get this sense of kind of overwhelming doom. And like I remember driving along the streets and just thinking the world is going to end. It was just this really impenetrable darkness that kind of comes across your mindset. And, you know, your voice seizes up. So I didn't know where to get help. I couldn't even speak about it. And And it's interesting, sorry, in that as well, like a lot of people suffer anxiety when they're younger and learn how to kind of manage it. But what I've been um, noticing is a number of friends who have been going through perimenopause or menopause 
have had anxiety like for the first time in their life and um you know it's really interesting how it's affecting them and they're like I'm just so anxious about the most minute crap and I like have no idea why I've never felt like this in my life so I'm curious because you were quite not flippant but you you obviously you've just got an action kind of mind I guess I'm the same like let's just get on with it and let's fix it but you managed to kind of get on with that and and heal yourself I guess or help yourself through that if there's someone listening that is kind of suffering in that regard, what are some really basic, easy things for them to do immediately? Like I've always sort of learned to concentrate and focus on your breath, but um, I'm really curious about how you would suggest, you know, if I'm kind of suffering about of anxiety, what would I do? I would say there's a lot of ways to kind of answer that question really. And there's a lot of fantastic really easy things that somebody can do to almost like alleviate some of the stressors that are on the body. So for example, you could you could look at sort of a lifestyle medicine approach which would say minimal to no alcohol, minimal to no sugar and minimal to no caffeine. Make sure you're exercising outside in nature every day and really learn some very good breath exercises. Now breath exercises are so powerful, but often what happens is we go to see a psychologist for anxiety And even though they might teach us that, there's actually not the significant emphasis on how incredibly profound they can be to actually activate the parasympathetic nervous system. And I think they get minimised in our society too because we sort of tend to really like things that cost a lot of money that are a bit more complicated and a little bit more sort of, um, yeah, the simple things don't tend to kind of get a really good rap. Why is that? Because you think we've paid a lot of money for it, so therefore it must be, you know, successful or something. It's going to fix me. Is that the thing? Well, we we live in a hierarchical, you know, entitled society, so we tend to sort of like what we're entitled to. And the thing is that egalitarian society is it's like we've all got breath, <laughs> so we could all learn to really use it, and that would be probably the greatest thing that somebody could learn from anxiety. And I'll often... I guess facetiously kind of say that if you can learn how to really embrace the breath, you can reduce your anxiety by about 40%. Now, I just make that up. However, about four years ago, a research study came through where they did two arms. One arm was putting a group of people through 10 minutes, three times a day of breathing exercises versus cognitive behavioural therapy, which is a fantastic therapy, by the way. But the breathing exercises for six weeks was equally as effective as two years of cognitive behavioural therapy. Now, if that's not the most profound, a psychologist told me this study, and it's just the most profound study, really, to actually understand how vital the breath is. And other lifestyle medicine factors is, is also nutrition. So the brain and the body and the nervous system require a lot of nutrition, So in perimenopause, you know, sometimes why things happen is there's a change in the neurosteroids, which is estrogen and progesterone and testosterone do cross the blood-brain barrier and they impact things like anxiety and depression just by their very kind of nature. But I also like to really delve deeply in that. You talk about perimenopause as a really time of transition. It's a transition time culturally. It's transition time spiritually you know, mentally for career times, for stages of life. You know, often children are getting older if women have had children and there's ageing parents as well. So there's a lot of kind of, um, there's like a boiling pot of issues that happen for women around that particular age. And I think 
to be fair on women, we do live in a gender unequal society. And sometimes the anxiety, there's definitely physiological causes of it. But there's also other aspects that we can learn from the actual experience of anxiety, even things like boundaries and learning how to voice our needs and other things like that. We tend to burn ourselves out even with a domestic load or with a workload or with a mental load. And that's often invisible, not only to other people, but it's actually invisible to ourselves. And so I think perimenopause can be a real opportunity to look at the invisible load that many women in this society carry as the caregivers, as the compassion providers, as in some situations kind of less, I guess, valued. Uh, I think there's some real, really distinctive elements that occur during that particular time of a woman's life. It's an interesting way to look at it. And I think your philosophy and um, your book is called The Wonder Within. And it's a fabulous book around, it says, a heart-led playbook for the anxious, stressed out and burnt out. Um, and there's a couple of things I want to dig into a little bit more in a sec. But one of the things that I picked up throughout the book is that almost like self-awareness, self-management, and you continuously put a different lens you know, instead of like the poor me, get help, do this, it's actually what is this teaching you? And you've used it a couple of times there in examples of actually this is a wonderful, you know, experience. I'm like, well, well I probably wouldn't call like anxiety, with anxiety a wonderful experience. But your point is you're learning, your body's teaching yourself all the time. You just have to listen. And um, I think that's a really lovely premise. I mean, I think it's such a powerful premise and I guess I've used it in my own life and so you know, I guess all teachers are people that have learnt it themselves. Emotions are information. So the body learns through emotions and emotions are just energy in motion. So as we learn about our own minds, that we can actually learn to interpret emotions really differently. And we also live in a society that doesn't like the negative emotions and really focuses on the positive emotions. And if we can learn to kind of come into flow and see them for what they are, as the energy comes, the energy will flow up and intensify and then it will naturally actually dissipate. And that's according to the laws of mathematics and chemistry and all of the other kind of scientific worlds. I mean, this is not new. So it's just the way that we do things. We, we fixate on our emotions and we actually shame ourselves for our emotions. I shouldn't be feeling anxious. I shouldn't be feeling stressed. What's wrong with me? Why am I feeling so angry or resentful? Yeah, but it's information. Your body's giving you information. Yeah, and it's so powerful once you once you start to be able to sit with the uncomfortable emotions. They go quicker. They come and they go and they provide the information that they want you to provide and they become your guide. But it's a really cool skill. <laughs> It's really cool. It's such an interesting way to look at it. And I kind of probably naturally do that, but I've never really thought about how that happens. Um, you know, I, I kind of use, always use the term, I don't dwell on stuff. I kind of go, okay, what's the information giving me? Everything I would have taken. I'm kind of a good crisis manager, I guess, you know, <laughs> what action do I need to take? But you wrote um, in your book within the disease management part, which was something that really resonated with me, the quote, I'll just read it here. We are anti-illness, anti-exploring for the underlining cause and anti-asking if there is another way. We live in a world that is anti-feeling any discomfort. And it so resonated because I was like, oh, yes. Like I just see it all the time 
that everyone has that, well, I don't want to feel sick and doctors that you go to, you know, all I say, well, what's the alternative? I don't want to go on antibiotics. Even I was in hospital with back surgery recently. They're like injecting me. I'm like, what are you putting into me? Like antibiotics. I'm like, do I have to have it? Like, I don't feel I'm good. I might, it affects my gut health massively. They're like, yeah, she must. Like, I didn't even have a choice. She's like injecting it into me. I was like, bloody hell. I mean, I think this is a really fabulous um, couple of sentences that was quite profound for me. And, you know, it obviously speaks volumes in terms of the work you do. Well, we're, we're also anti-aging and we have antidepressants and we have antibiotics and, you know, like everything is tending to kind of look in a very micro orientated way. Problem fix it. So it's very linear, it's very reductionist, and it's very fragmented, which is kind of the point that we started off with is what do I want more people to talk about, which is holism. And so when we start asking these questions about depression, antidepressants, sure, it's very uncomfortable to feel depressed and antidepressants can be a profoundly important option for some people. But to make it the only option, is really the problem because when depression arises, there's so much often through the story of what's actually occurring, whether it's, again, back to that lifestyle element, like are we actually looking after the physicality of the health appropriately? Are we, if we've got a lot of internal inflammation, are we eating poorly? Is there micronutrient deficiencies? You know, or are we sedentary? Or is there deep issues with our relationships or our sleep or all of those different things. So we really need to investigate all of those underlying causes, which can then support us building back up to the whole. And Michelle, off air, we were talking about your journey, like, you know, and some of the struggles that you had early on. But, you know, there's always gifts in that because there's probably, depending on the trajectory of your life, the bad things that happen to us is often the best things that happen to us. If we've got the courage to take on the changes that life is asking of us. And that's the beautiful thing is we can just get better and better and better at living life. You know, that's what we want is this continuous sense of evolution and growth and learning and knowledge. And I think we, our poor medical system, which is suffering under so much of a burden and this micro look at illness that takes maybe five minutes or 10 minutes or 15 minutes is not enough to discover the power of, of holism. And I often say like in complex systems, so the human body is a complex system, the earth is a complex system. The definition of a complex system is that the whole of that system is worth more than the sum of its parts. So when you look at it, like if you look after the gut, you know, and then you look after the brain, you're looking after the muscles and you're looking after, you know, the spleen. Once you start looking after all of the different bits, the whole aspect of health starts to come. It's more abundant than even the one thing that you might do, you know, for your gut. And so it's beautiful because all roads lead to Rome and <laughs> focusing on holism is really powerful and the emotions a part of that whole. So actually learning how to regulate our emotions, but also not to deflect away from the negative ones, to really just be able to sit and see what the negative ones bring is really powerful as a skill to kind of become better at being yourself. I think it's, um, 
easy maybe for us to say that that have done the work and you know we've kind of sat and wallowed in their shit <laughs> and some of that deep-seated you know stuff that we deal with like you know whether that's like shame or um, embarrassment or the you know trauma of things that have happened to us previously etc the thing I find interesting is the people I know that probably really need to do that and to do the work are the ones that are obviously the most hesitant and they're too scared and they're like I just don't want to open like pull that plug because the banks will break you know and I keep trying to encourage them to say that's the only way to do it you can't keep living your life like you're living now and you know, to, to gently sit with some of that stuff that's uncomfortable, just start little by little. But I'd love your view on on that, you know, in terms of people you've dealt with and um, worked with, because it, it's an interesting one. And I'm not a practitioner at all. I've just done my own work and experience. And so try to, to as you point before, try to give some sort of ideas of the way people can kind of have a little bit of breakthrough. But um, it's painful for me to watch with really good mates that I just know, like if they just let that go, the freedom that they would have in their lives and the change that that would make would be phenomenal. Yeah, I think that's the thing. I mean, little bit like by little bit works for for some people. Some people like to kind of dive in and kind of rip the Band-Aid off. Yeah, so there's lots of different types of kind of approaches to those kind of things. And I think it just depends probably a little bit on constitution and personality type as well. But I think personal empowerment is really important, actually, to to understand that only you can do the work. That's really important. And the other thing that I'll often, you know, encourage people is that usually the dark parts are really not as dark as you think. <laughs> Once you kind of go there, there's almost like a there's like a threshold. And, and I didn't write this in the book, but it's a little bit like um, when a woman delivers a baby. There's a physiological time in that labor process called the transition zone. And it's like a point of no return, but it's a point that is incredibly significant. It's sort of the peak of the pain. It's the peak of the discomfort. It's a very, very powerful moment from going from contractions into the second stage of labor, which is the pushing stage. And it's known physiologically as a transition zone. And so with anxiety in many ways, there's a transition zone and it feels kind of overwhelming, but that overwhelming feeling is actually very, very small. And so that's a, that's a part of that kind of encouragement of actually just really allowing yourself to go there. And the other thing is looking at what's the alternative, you know, do we stay in this anxiety? Do we stay in that? And so really encouraging people to actually understand that there are options, that there are choices, that this could get better. I talk about a concept called pronoia. So everybody's very familiar with paranoia. Oh, you're just being paranoid. You're just worrying about things. So paranoia is obviously, you know, an excessive focus on the negative. Whereas pronoia is exactly the same in terms of opportunity where we can actually focus potentially in the future as if the world is actually gearing all in our favour. So it's really beautiful in the way because we know that paranoia is kind of our made-up thinking process. And so where does that come from? It's just completely made up. So we can make up another alternative, which is pronoia. 
And sometimes little games like this that we offer ourselves can be a really beautiful opportunity to reframe just in those really micro moments for people. And I think one of the most powerful things is when we feel shame or anxiety, it's actually a contracting experience and it pulls us away from people. The same with fear, anxiety or fear and shame, they're actually innate emotions. So there's not one human being on the planet that doesn't experience anxiety and doesn't experience shame. And so that alone for me was really profound in the sense that that is a way that I share my humanity. So I'm connected to you because you feel shame and you feel fear, and I do too. And so that was a really beautiful part for me. It was actually just connecting on those particular levels because when we feel really anxious, particularly our society is like, what's wrong with you, you know? And I would actually kind of really encourage people to say, there's nothing wrong with me. In fact, you know, I am feeling anxious because of the thousands of things that I'm carrying and my lack of resources to be able to cope with that at this particular time. There's nothing wrong with me. I'm not broken. I don't need to be fixed. I just need to be supported and upskilled in a completely new way that actually works with my internal neurobiology. Beautifully um, said there. I think that that you know, encapsulates everything that I kind of think about and the way I word stuff. But what a wonderful thing to think about, you know, for next time you're sort of having that bout, like, oh, okay, this is a good thing. My body's telling me there's something going on and I need to focus on that. And, you know, you talk about that. Get curious, like get really curious. I love, I love the asking of questions like, wow, I wonder why I'm feeling so anxious. Like, this is really interesting. And like, and rather than distracting ourselves away, I mean, sometimes distracting ourselves away, you know, if we have something that we need to do is, is an option. But to always consistently do that can sometimes take ourselves away from the opportunity to learn a different thing about ourselves. Yeah, and not dealing with it. It's that whole classic, you're just suppressing it. It's not getting rid of it. It's going to come back and it might continue to grow. I want to just shift where kind of coming to the end, but I, I really wanted to ask you about the holistic medicine space. I, I don't know what the numbers are in terms of uh, medical practitioners and how many are working this space now, but a lot of people um, don't have a holistic, more of a holistic doctor. I do. It took me a while to find a really good one. He's the same tra trained GP, but, you know, works in the holistic space. And I love the fact that he comes from things at multiple angles. It's a, a rare thing that I've seen. I've seen obviously a lot of medical professionals in my life. Is there a particular organisation or a register or a list that people can go to to find, you know, a doctor in their place? So there's two organisations, or there's actually three organisations. One's called the Australian Integrative Medicine Association. The second one is called the Australian College of Nutrition and Environmental Medicine. And the third is the Austral Australasian Society of Lifestyle Medicine. And they all have practitioner directories associated. So there's about 33% of doctors that actually consider themselves integrative, but it's a very different definition of what integrative means. So somebody that might consider themselves integrative could to somebody else feel like a regular GP. But certainly all GPs are actually taught in a holistic framework, you know, this psychosocial, um, biopsychosocial model. And Western medicine is inherently holistic. 
It's just the systems actually failing the doctors to provide that. I mean, sure, there's individuals that are a little bit more closed-minded than others, but and the training certainly doesn't provide very much in the way of nutritional medicine. That's what I've found. The gut health, you know, like no knowledge at all. Like over the years I've been teaching doctors and they're like, well, that's not, I'm like, okay, here's five articles that come from medical backgrounds. I think you need to read up, <laughs> you know, it's frustrating. Well, the problem is, you know, there's so much research now, like the research doubles every year and there's no not a doctor on the planet that can keep up with every aspect of, of the research. But and, isn't, and, sorry, I need to just pull on that thread. Isn't that the problem? So you, No, but you're saying there's not a doctor on the planet that can keep up. So why, and this is my whole point about, you know, when I wrote the book, you know, Doctors Are Not Gods, it's because we have this expectation that this person sitting in front of us knows everything and all elements, all ailments, everything up to date with my body sitting here right now. And that you're saying it cannot be true. No one can no. do that. But this is my point that I was going to make was this is the power of holism, though. So when we come back to holistic principles all the time, then that allows the research to become an informative aspect rather than the only aspect. So we've become almost like a society that's like obsessed by the scientific model as if that's the only model of care. And our research methods then determine how we think. And so when you look at holistic medicine, like, you know, acupuncture or Ayurveda or indigenous medical systems, their, their philosophy or their understanding or the deep listening of holism becomes a profound sort of envelope or umbrella that supports the research, whereas we flipped it the other way. We look at the research first and then we fragment and that's essentially the issue. So it's not so much, I mean, research is great and, and science is a great forum, but to think it's the only way to deal with a doctor-patient relationship is inherently flawed because medicine was always an art. Okay, so doctors actually, you know, we, I guess I, I feel slightly uncomfortable when people kind of go, oh, you're just a science you know, because I, I married an artist and He's an arty guy. And uh, we did yoga the other day and the yoga teacher goes, oh, you're the creative one and she's the sciencey one. I was like, I'm really creative. Like I'm a really super creative person. And the doctor-patient relationship is a creation. It's a creative communion between two individuals, one with the medical, biological psychosocial knowledge and that subjective and objective opportunity for the person to sit with themselves and explore themselves. And then obviously technology has provided some really fantastic transformations. But technology alone isn't going to save us. It's the craft and the art and bringing back humanity into medicine, which is going to make the most profound difference. And We've focused so much on the evidence, which is really a part of medicine and not the whole. Yeah, no, it completely makes sense to me. I guess, uh, you know, I think there's so much great technology available and I can't help but feel that we can be doing it better right now. Like, so, you know, using whether it is an AI 
sort of sense in the kind of medical sphere to uh, diagnose stuff that's like relatively simple or easy or whatever. I don't know, like that then the doctors actually can, you know, for those particular cases that they really need to be with the person and, you know, going through complex sort of issues. Um, and I know they are starting to, you know, use bots way more in terms of, you know, um, X-ray you know, and CTs and scans and things, like picking up anomalies and stuff like that, which is great. But I feel that our medical system, and again, I might be talking completely off, you know, it's not my field, but just an observation. I just feel like it's broken in this country. And, you know, having a doctor, as you say, have 10 minutes with you and you're like, you can't find the language of how to explain something. So again, I try and tell people, write down the notes before you get there, because you'll always get flustered. You know, they freak out when you take your blood pressure, you're stressed out, like all the things, because you're just nervous about talking about something that's you don't feel comfortable about or it's icky or it's, you know, it's like a weird thing to talk about or whatever about your body. So, yeah, there's a lot of change, I think, that needs to happen in this space. And um, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. Is it going to blow up first or is it, you know, we just keep tracking along because we've got a real crisis, haven't we? I think we do. I share a lot of those sentiments. I think we do have a bit of a crisis, yeah, for sure. I mean, I think most people can kind of feel it. You know, and having said that, some people come to see me and are like, you know, they have an incredible relationship with their GP and it's a very trusted relationship. It's really beautiful, very caring, very compassionate. But I do know, you know, GPs are incredibly burnt out. Nurses, 67% of nurses are burnt out, you know. One in three psychiatrists are thinking of quitting it really is the worst I've ever seen it. And um, whether I'm looking just in that sort of direction because I guess I'm sort of, you know, feeling exposed to that or it's only my opinion. That's, I mean, I know some of the statistics associated with it, but are we heading for a crash? We'll just have to wait and see. But in the meantime, <laughs> we need to take control, right, and look after ourselves more and, as you said, listen. That's right. And that's why really looking at some of the messages that might be coming from within ourselves and really trying not to add that second blanket of shame or humiliation or even anger towards ourselves. I think self-compassion is a real game changer for navigating any sphere, whether you're navigating your career, navigating the medical field, you know, navigating parenthood, navigating any challenging new role that you have in life self-compassion is an absolute game changer absolutely yeah i couldn't agree with you more so michelle it's been so divine to chat to you what a fascinating conversation and i know i could pick your brain so much more <laughs> but we're time. so thanks so much for being on the show thanks michelle great to be here well there you have it wasn't that an incredible conversation I hope you enjoyed it as much as I've enjoyed bringing it to you. If you did like it, can I ask a small favor? Please rate and review on your listening platform for me. I know everyone asks this, but it seriously makes a difference to help get these conversations out in the world and makes all the hard work and effort I put into this for you all the more worthwhile. And until next time, if you have one question you'd like to ask me, hit me up on my socials or jump on my website, michellejcox.com.